0: yes where is he the champion and the child of all that's great or little wise or wild whose table earth whose dice were human bones behold the grand result in yon lone isle and as thy nature urges weep or smile lord byron
1: Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to the Napoleon Bonaparte podcast, episode number 42. Welcome back, my esteemed colleague, the Honorable J. David Markham. How are the sales of the new book going, sir?
0: Well, I really don't know how they're how they're going, uh, but uh, I'm I'm sure that if everybody listens to your kind con- comments from the last issue uh, or the last episode, I should say, and goes out to buy the book, that will do well. Uh, Amazon US has been a little slow, uh, apparently, to actually get the books. At least according to their website, Amazon UK has them, but I imagine they'll be available uh, fairly soon. Uh, Borders or Barnes and Noble—I forget which now—apparently uh, does have uh, copies and, and and is selling them.
1: I've got a review up on Amazon that I'd like to read uh, from Miles Keston, uh, who calls himself a typical male in Canada. Shout out to Miles <laughs> if he's listening to the show. This isn't one of your uh, pseudonyms that you use to review your own books, though, is it, David? No, 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 I've never done that. Says David Markham once again delivers outstanding scholarship in this work on the end of Napoleon's career. Most people consider Waterloo the end of the story. This book shows that it clearly wasn't and that there is so much to tell about how and why Napoleon was incarcerated by the British, so much that reflects on the here and now. And again, he delivers a great page-turner. I highly recommend this book for the general reader. There you go. That's that's a pretty good review. You got to be happy about that. Not really oh, to this guy in any was, way. He's not on the payroll.
0: No, 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 no. I there is trust me, there is no payroll. Uh, <laughs> and 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 no, I, I I don't know this fellow at all. Uh, but you'd of like to. Was, now. I'm sorry. But you'd like to now because he's you know. Oh, of course I would. Nice. I mean, I'm I'm delighted to meet anyone who. Who, who is interested in Napoleon, uh, has read any of my books, and if they happen to like the books uh, so much, the better. Uh, I mean, one of the things that's really good about my Napoleonic career is all of the people that I have met one way or the other. Now, some of them I've only met online, you know, uh, uh, Skype uh, comments or, or more likely emails. Uh, a few of them I've met uh, in person uh, like you, for example, uh, Jim Bischoff in England and any number of other folks, uh, uh, come to mind. And, uh, those people become, become good friends. And, and even those who I only meet online, uh, I, I grow to enjoy their, their, their quote unquote company and so on. Uh, uh, Ken Richards, for example, in, in, in Australia, you know, we have, we've, talked on video Skype a couple of times and 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 emailed a bunch, and that's been pretty much it. Uh, and yet you get to feel that you know them after a while. And, and for those of you who would like to get to know Cameron and David, uh, we're going to be in Paris uh, in a couple of weeks, uh, and there's a chance for you to meet us there. Why don't you tell them about it, Cameron?
1: Yeah, it's very exciting stuff. Um... We're of course going to Ajaccio in Corsica, Napoleon's birthplace for the International Napoleonic Society's
0: conference. And-, and, and, and by the way, let me interrupt anyone who finds suddenly that they can be in Corsica, uh, for, for that week, uh, which is the, the, the week of the uh, 7th, I think. Uh, you're welcome to, to, to come there. And, and there's no charge. Come and listen to the papers and, and meet uh, Cameron, myself, and a number of other uh, major Napoleonic scholars from around the world. No, no charge to come to the conference? No charge whatsoever. We'd be delighted to have
1: you there. And that's the 7th of July in Ajaccio in Corsica. So we're going to be at that. And then afterwards uh, on the 3rd...
0: 7th to the 11th. 7th
1: to the 11th of July. And then uh, afterwards, David and I are going to go to Paris for a couple of days. And we're going to shoot some video podcasts uh, around Paris. We're going to go to La Maison. We're going to go to... uh, the Les Invalides and the, the Military Museum and, and the Musée de Armée and we're going to go to a number of places, and, and the, the Arc de Triomphe, and we're going to shoot some video podcasts of David and I talking about these places and their significance and a bit about Napoleon, and um, well, I'm also going to be recording uh, a number of all of the speakers, including myself and the Honourable Mr Markham, at uh, the INS conference. And the plan is to put that out on a DVD pack for everybody. There'll be a, a, a small charge for the DVD pack. I'm not quite sure how much yet, but uh, and hopefully that will be out, you know, sort of late July, maybe early August. Uh, we'll get that out to you, and you'll be able to see us wandering around Corsica and wandering around Paris, uh, talking about Napoleon and visiting some of the sites. It should be. Uh, Very exciting stuff. But anyway, getting back to Paris. So what we're thinking of doing at this stage is on the evening of the 13th of July, organising some drinks uh, and a place for everyone who's there. We've already got a couple of people uh, that have confirmed they're going to be there and we're going to catch up with. And uh, for further details, uh, keep an eye on the Napoleon blog, the podcast blog, napoleon.thepodcastnetwork.com. And um, over the course of the next week or so, we'll confirm details of that. David's suggesting the Café de la Paix. Is that right, David?
0: That's right. It's uh, one of the most famous places in, in Paris. It's right around the corner from the opera, very well located. Uh, the, the good news is that it's, it's really a neat place, whether you eat outside and, or just have a drink outside uh, and, and watch the people go by. Or go inside where the prices go up, but the elegance also goes up. Uh, however well it works out, uh, it's it's really, you know, one of those places you have to go uh, at least once uh, in your life, particularly if you're going to Paris. You need to see the Café de la Paix simply because it's there.
1: So, uh, yeah, that's going to be very exciting. And, of course, the 14th is Bastille Day, and um, we think that Paris is going to be pretty crazy on Bastille Day, but... Uh... It should be fun to be there. You said there's fireworks and a big celebration there. There, sort of Independence Day, I guess, to commemorate the
0: storming of the Bastille. Well, they do it up well from everything I've been able to to see. Now I've I've, I've avoided being in 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 France actually, uh, or at least in Paris on on the Juillet, uh, the Fourteenth of July, uh, at least in part because of the potential for crowds and so on. But this happens to be uh, when, it, when we were available to be there. Uh, and, and frankly, it should be kind of fun. Uh, I think they do some fireworks and, and, or at least a sound and light show of some kind by the Arc de Triomphe. Uh, and, and I'm sure they do major fireworks around the uh, Tour Eiffel, the Eiffel Tower. Uh, so I'm, I'm looking forward to it. It should be a great time. And, and I'm also looking forward to, to your idea of, of doing some uh, video podcasts at, at Les Invalides where Napoleon is buried and uh, the Musée de l'Armée, in particular, of course, the Napoleonic uh, rooms uh, there, which have some absolutely spectacular uh, items. Uh, and of course, Napoleon's tomb itself. And we'll even go into the gift shop and see if they're selling uh, Napoleon pour les nuls, Napoleon for uh, dummies, in, in French. Uh, you know that, that that's always been sort of you know one of my little dreams in life is to discover that the that the gift shop at Napoleon's tomb is selling my book and. Uh, so let's let's hope that they that they have it, so you don't see my face fall when we walk <laughs> in and see it's not there.
1: I'm sure I'll I'll be able to take a couple of copies. I'll sneak them in and put them on the shelf while they're not looking, if they're not there, because I I would hate for you to be let down.
0: Well, uh, you realize, of course, that the the, the, the the it's obvious that if there are if there's no copies there, it's because they've sold, sold out sold the 25 out of course, that they have.
1: Of course, of course. <laughs> All right, so uh, let's get on with the show uh, now. The last time we uh, left Napoleon about a month ago in our uh, timeline. Uh, He had just been transferred from the Bellerophon to the Northumberland. And I've I've got a nice little quote here that I'd like to open with. Um, This is, again, from uh, Napoleon Bonaparte, England's Prisoner by Frank uh, Giles. An excellent book. Yeah, it's a a nice little book. I picked it up secondhand somewhere um, some years ago. He says, uh, Maitland, watching the Northumberland recede, as the Bellerophon's ship company was also doing, said to his servant, What do people say of him? This is referring to Napoleon, of course. The man replied that he had, that very morning, overheard some of the sailors discussing their passenger, and one of them had said, They may abuse that man as much as they please, but if the people of England knew him as well as we do, they would not hurt a hair on his head, to which the others had agreed. The mutual respect between Napoleon and the Royal Navy, which had its beginnings in Bellerophon and was continued during the long voyage to St Helena, thus becomes an established fact to the honour of both parties. Maitland closes this unprecedented chapter of dramatic events in words that admirably sum up the reactions towards Napoleon of that very small portion of the British people which had had personal experiences of and contact with the defeated Superman. Reactions founded partly on the image of a fallen idol, but also on natural, humane feelings. He wrote, "'It may appear surprising that the possibility could exist of a British officer being prejudiced in favour of one who had caused so many calamities to his country, but to such an extent did he possess the power of pleasing that there are few people who could have sat at the same table with him for nearly a month, as I did,' Without feeling a sensation of pity, allied perhaps to regret, that a man possessed of so many fascinating qualities and who had held so high a situation in life, should be reduced to the situation in which I saw him. Interesting, always to me, sir, that uh, the people who got to know Napoleon for brief periods of time uh, and had no, you know, political uh, motivation to speak. Well of him seem to do so, and he's. We we I think during the course of this show, I, we've pulled out lots of those, lots of people who spoke admirably of this guy with the opportunity that they had to spend a bit of time with him.
0: Well, there's no question about that, Cameron. Uh, we have made made that point before, and it, it's a point worth repeating. Uh, Napoleon was a fascinating person to get to know. Uh, he was a, he was a charmer. Uh, he he could, when he wanted to be, he could charm your socks off. And people who who had a chance to sit down and talk with him on a on a one to one basis or in you know, a friendly manner of some kind, uh, including uh, British uh, visitors to the island of Elba when he was there in his first exile, including some who talked with him on on these various voyages that we've been discussing. Uh, and and uh, and and also people who saw him on S- Saint Helena, uh, they all were likely. I always hate to say all, but most of them were were were, were enamored with him, and 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 they recognized the, the humanity of this person. He, he was not, in fact, the the Corsican ogre. Uh, he was not the great thief of Europe. Uh, and even though, for political reasons, geopolitical reasons, uh, uh, they knew that their government and the French government uh, had been at odds, uh, they could recognize in Napoleon uh, someone with a great deal of humanity. It's also uh, I think important to, to 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 take note of a couple of other things. you know first of all, for example uh, the the British people. Had a a tendency to to believe, as did all of the Europeans of those days, that people at the top uh, should be treated with a certain amount of dignity and respect, whether they were defeated or not. Uh, it was a very hierarchical society, and 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 Napoleon was a former emperor, emperor of the French, emperor of Elba. Uh, he was a former general. He was first consul. <clears throat> I think last time we talked about you know what the the uh, uh, the British were going to agree to call him, and they finally came up with general, which was a real insult. But to the average you know, proverbial man on the street, he was an emperor who deserved to be treated uh, uh, with some respect. And it also, again, has to be pointed out, and I, I suspect I have done this already, that Great Britain had a tradition of treating deposed monarchs, uh, monarchs in hiding, monarchs forced to flee for their lives, like the, the Louis, for example, the, the Bourbon family, uh, treating these folks uh, with, with dignity and with respect, and indeed setting them up in some pretty nice digs. Uh, so it was perfectly acceptable to the average British citizen that Napoleon, even though he had been an enemy of the British government when he was in power, just as, by the way, to various uh, degrees, uh, the the Bourbon kings had been the enemies of the British government. After all, relations between uh, France and England didn't go south just because Napoleon came to power. There had been, uh, you know, a controversy between them and, and competition between them uh, for hundreds of years. Uh, But nevertheless, it was perfectly acceptable and understandable and indeed, I would argue, expected that once your enemy met on hard times, you would treat at least the monarch, in this case Napoleon, with the kind of respect uh, and generosity that a monarch would deserve. Uh, And Napoleon, of course, did that when he would defeat... uh, uh, the the Austrians or defeat the Prussians or defeat the Russians. He he didn't go in and demand uh, that they overthrow their monarch. You know the Emperor of Austria uh, was was not uh, uh, deposed from his throne. Uh, he did end up actually giving up the the. Uh, one position he had it as a Holy Roman emperor, which was you know sort of a a sham anyway by then uh but but there was no challenge to his right to remain in 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 charge of his country and had the people booted him out of office for some reason uh one has no a difficulty at all, imagining that Napoleon uh, would have welcomed him to Paris and set him up. Even not, you know, e- even before he married the guy's daughter. Obviously, once he's married into the family, that makes it e- even even different. Uh, but they, the the powers of Europe and the British in general, uh, did not treat Napoleon as well as they would have treated and did treat other monarchs. And they did not treat Napoleon as well as Napoleon treated them. Uh, and one can argue, you know, all night long over uh, was Great Britain generous to Napoleon or was Great Britain, you know, uh, uh, awful to Napoleon. And the truth, of course, is is somewhere in the middle. Awful would have been turning him back to Louis XVIII, or worse yet, probably turning him over to uh, the Prussians, Marshal Blucher, who would have shot him on sight. Uh, awful would have been throwing him into one of the British uh, hulks, which served as uh, uh, prisons which by today's standards would nowhere near meet the Geneva Accords or, or any other uh, symbol of, of decency and humanity, but, but for the time were, were acceptable. So, of course, Napoleon could have been treated worse but he also could have been treated a heck of a lot better and should have been treated a heck of a lot better. I mean, there was really no reason for Napoleon to be sent to such a remote location. And even, and we'll talk about this a little bit later, even if you believe that sending him to this remote location was the right thing to do, he could have been treated better while he was there. On location, then they chose to treat him, and, and I'll I'll talk about this in, in some detail uh, sometime in the next five or six uh, episodes.
1: I've got some interesting quotes uh, from uh, some of Napoleon's British admirers. Somebody I think I mentioned in perhaps the last episode was uh, Lord Holland, uh, aka Henry Richard Fox, the Third Baron Holland. He he and his wife were big fans of uh, Napoleon's, although apparently Lord Holland was, after Napoleon became emperor, became fairly suspicious still, though he thought that if it was a choice between Napoleon and the Bourbons that Napoleon was the better choice. That's Uh, right. And um, he writes uh, here to say that, uh, you know, he, he was fighting for a better treatment of Napoleon. During uh, the the exile, and there was a, I think we've mentioned this before. There was a, a group of British supporters who were trying to ensure that Napoleon was uh, treated uh, less harshly, but uh, they didn't have enough of a voice, obviously, to change things. So the the trip on the Northumberland was uh, sixty seven days in and of itself before he gets to Saint Helena. Do you do you have do you know much about the Time spent on Northumberland, or was it just uh, playing cards and chasing girls?
0: <laughs> well, I don't think pretty there much, are a lot pretty of girls. Much,
1: pretty much like my time in Corsica is going to be, I have to say.
0: Well, I'm I'm sure it will be, and 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 I would join you in 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 that pursuit. I'm I'm sure, although I think that that my wife will have a different idea as to just how much of that should go on. I, she, uh, she will be the girl you'll be chasing around, of course. Well, absolutely. At any rate, uh, the, 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 the trip was, you know, there's not a whole lot you can say about the trip. Uh, it was, uh, long. Any, any ship journey of that length is going to be tedious. Uh, he spends most of his time, Napoleon spends most of his time, uh, with the, the officers, uh, uh, of the artillery company that that was on the voyage, uh, and 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 also the officers of the crew, in part because of the fact that, and I'm going to talk about at least some of the major parts of the entourage here in a minute, but there's uh, a lot of bickering between the members of the entourage, sometimes within the same family. Uh, Sometimes between each other. I mean, it's a it's a court in miniature, and there's a lot of bickering and dispute as to who should have what honors, et cetera, et cetera. And frankly, Napoleon gets kind of sick of it. He's he's picked these people uh, sometimes because he really wants them there, sometimes because uh, uh, you know he's uh, been sort of pressured into it. Uh, but they, they, these these people do not always get along although they all do continue to play at, at, at having an imperial court. And Napoleon, you can just see him rolling his eyes, thinking, people, you know, we're going off to this island. We don't know what it's going to be like. Uh, you know, give it a rest. And so he plays cards. Uh, he hangs out with the, with the various officers. Uh, one of the people— uh that i find fascinating that he met was a was a young uh irish uh, doctor uh in, in the british military attached to this company named james verling uh who who spoke uh uh some french and uh uh he had a chance to uh, talk with him a lot and and developed a, a very good relationship with him uh, and, and and that's important uh, for uh, one aspect uh, later on in his time on Saint Helena, and also the fact that that one of my uh, books is uh, Napoleon and Doctor Verling on Saint Helena. That's that's a fascinating story. He plays a lot of venteun, uh, a twenty-one, a, a card game. Uh, as he had for you know most of his adult life, he he cheated at cards. Uh, but but he did so, uh, knowing that everybody else was aware that he did, and he always gave the money back. I mean, it was it was like just see what I can get away with, uh, but but I'm not gonna you know no one's gonna suffer for it. It's just sort of the way he played the game, and everybody understood it. Uh, uh, he didn't always cheat, but but if he did, uh, he would he would never keep the uh, keep the winnings. Uh, he spent a lot of time uh, with Rear Admiral Sir George Cockburn. Uh, and if you read uh cockburn's uh, uh diary uh it's it's an absolutely fascinating insight into the kind of person you know, that napoleon was uh and it, you know cockburn's a little bit like like you were talking about you know he he gets to know napoleon up close and personal uh for uh what a couple of months or so uh and uh as a result, uh, really develops a pretty good understanding of of, of Napoleon. Uh, so it's it's to historians, it's an interesting journey, and and we all would have loved to have sort of been the fly on the wall for some of these conversations. But to the men and to Napoleon and to Napoleon's entourage. I'm sure it got to be tedious and boring, but but let me tell you a little bit about some of the folks who who were there and 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 there's all sorts of servants, all sorts of of uh, uh, major duomos and, and and so on that he's got uh, and uh, and I'll talk about some of those as well.
1: I've got let something, me give you a, I've got something I go, can interject with while you gather your thoughts if you want. Please do. This is uh, some uh, paragraphs from a book written by William Warden, who was the surgeon on board the Northumberland.
0: He, right. We used him last week. It's a very, very good source. Very good source. Sure. I, ho- I hope I'm not
1: repeating us then. I can't tell. When I start this, tell me if you read it last week. He, uh, I, I don't think you will, though, because it's about Napoleon. Uh, uh, stepping on board the Northumberland, says with a slow step, one apart mounted the gangway, and on feeling himself firm on the quarter deck, he raised his hat. When the guard presented arms and the drum rolled, the officers of the Northumberland who were uncovered stood considerably in advance. Those he approached and saluted with an air of the most affable politeness. He then addressed himself to Sir George Cockburn and hastily asked for the Capitaine de Vaisseau, who was immediately introduced. But finding that he did not speak French, he successively spoke to several others till an officer of artillery replied to him in that language. Lord Lowther and the Honourable Mr. Littleton were then introduced to him, and in a few minutes he intimated a desire, though more by gesture than by words, to enter the cabin where he continued for about an hour. His dress was that of a general of French infantry when it formed a part of his army. The coat was green faced with white. The rest was white, with white silk stockings and a handsome shoe with gold oval buckles. He was decorated with a red ribbon and a star, with three medals suspended from a buttonhole. One of them represented the Iron Crown, and the others, different gradations of the Legion of Honour. His face was pale, and his beard of an unshaven appearance. Indeed, his general aspect justified the conjecture that he had not passed the preceding night in sound repose. His forehead is thinly covered with dark hair as well as the top of his head, which is large and has a singular flatness. What hair he has behind is bushy, and I could not discern the slightest mixture of white in it. His eyes, which are grey, are in continual motion and hurry rapidly to the various objects around him. His teeth are regular and good. His neck is short, but his shoulders of the finest proportion." The rest of his figure, though a little blended with the Dutch fullness, is of a very handsome form. It may be thought, perhaps, that I am very minute in my description of this distinguished person, but I fancied you would expect it of me, and that your well-known predominant curiosity on the subject must be gratified by it. He was writing to us. How did he know that we were going to be reading this? That's tremendous. (laughs) Besides, I may be naturally induced from my studies, my profession and my habits to examine the human figure with an anatomical eye. And on particular occasions and with particular objects, I have sometimes ventured, for I may safely acknowledge it to you, to indulge a reverie as to the confirmation of the human frame and deduce notions, erroneous enough perhaps, from a comparative view of corporal form and structure with intellectual capacity and leading dispositions. I love the way this guy rides. It's so beautiful, isn't it? so mm-hmm. so early nineteenth century, so proper anyway, it certainly is. I thought that was interesting. Just his description of Napoleon as he ended the boat. obviously it had uh had a rough night.
0: Well, who the hell wouldn't have a rough night? I mean, you've got to remember uh just to sort of recap how we got here I mean here he is he's he's retaken power uh he thinks he is really going to be able to maintain his position uh, by by quickly defeating the British and, and and the Prussians. That doesn't work out. He's unable to do what's necessary to to rally uh, the government to his cause. Uh, there's all this political intrigue and treachery and so forth that we've talked about over a few episodes and that I talk about in my book, you know, Napoleon After Waterloo. Uh, and, you know, finally, instead of going to America, instead of retiring gracefully in the new world, instead of being allowed to retire gracefully, you know, a 100 kilometers or so outside of uh, London— Uh, He's being sent to uh, what he knows to be a small island, a very long way away from anywhere. Pardon my yawn here. And he's not quite sure what kind of fate he's going to have there. I mean, he's obviously pretty sure at this point he's not going to be shot or thrown into a prison. So that's the good news. But the bad news is that he is going to a place where he will have really no ability to communicate with any of his friends and family other than the small entourage he's brought with him. And again, some of the folks he's brought with him, he's very, very happy to have. Uh, Others he's not so sure how well that's going to work out. And I'll I'll, I'll talk just about a few of them. I mean, I'm not about to spend time talking about the whole uh, group of them. One of uh, the people he most wanted to have there was General Henri Gatien-Bertrand, who was 42 years old at this time. He was the Grand Marshal of the Palace. Now, the Grand Marshal of the Palace is a pretty important position, among other things, that handles uh, the emperor's schedule. Uh, it, when, when Bertrand was in that position, he would determine who could or could not see Napoleon and when they could see him, uh, when Napoleon would go here, there, and everywhere. Uh, anyone who, like me, has been in politics, anyone who's, unlike me, been a head of state or, uh, or uh, you know, head of any kind of major governmental entity has to have a handler, has to have someone who sees to it that the schedule uh, makes sense. So so Bertrand is a good, loyal friend of Napoleon, and Napoleon really, really likes Bertrand, asked him to come with him, and frankly was elated uh, when Bertrand agreed. However, Bertrand's wife, Fanny, who brought along their three children— was not so thrilled to go fanny had thought she had been one of those people who really believed that if napoleon surrendered to the british that he would be able to retire to england so she has to have been distraught to discover that the the thing that she promoted has worked out you know so poor uh, and 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 so she's she's not really happy with going to Saint Helena, but she's a loyal wife and she's also loyal to the emperor. And and so there she goes. <clears throat> and then you have Count Charles Tristan Monthelon, whose wife, uh, who who is uh, thirty three years old, and his his wife uh, Albine, uh, and 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 the young son are along. <clears throat> now. He's he's sort of the odd man out in all of this. A lot of folks, including, by the way, Napoleon, probably were a little bit surprised to see that 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 Montalon uh is there. Uh he he had, you know, been a royalist and rallied to Napoleon, eventually become a general, but he hadn't had a real distinguished career. He was constantly in debt. He quite frequently got into trouble. Uh he, uh, you know, he, he later is accused of various things uh, and, 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 and the, the government sort of takes care of his debts later on, which, which feeds into his role in the controversy of Napoleon's death. Uh, many people, myself included, believe that it's quite likely Napoleon was poisoned. And Monthelon, as it turns out, is one of the prime uh, suspects. But Montalon figures in this in another way as well. Uh, Albine, uh, who is uh, apparently quite a, a decent-looking young woman. I, I, I actually don't off the, off the top of my head know her age, but if, if, if the husband was 33, she would have been 30 or so. Uh, Napoleon is, is quite a lot older uh, than that uh and uh, it, it seems that albine uh was willing to fulfill some of napoleon's natural enough desire for female companionship uh and we'll we'll let it go with that but yes there's a, there's a, a apparent affair between the two apparently montelan himself uh charles chiston montelan is is aware of it then you have general baron gaspar gorgon who was also 30—or rather, is 32 years old. Uh, he had been a, an orderly officer for Napoleon since 1811, and at Waterloo, he had been finally given promotion uh, to general, brigadier general. Uh, he was the one, you may recall, who was the primary negotiator with, with Captain Maitland on uh, and of course, those of you who have, have read a lot of Napoleonic history know that Gorgonza, uh uh memoirs are extremely important to the understanding, particularly of Napoleon on Saint Helena. And in my my most recent book, I I, I use his memoirs a fair amount. I use Montelan's memoirs some, but you have to be a little careful with Montelan's memoirs. They're they're a little. Uh, uh, questionable. Uh, Bertrand's uh, material is fine, and then you have the Marquis Emmanuel Auguste uh, D'Enjolras uh, de la Cases. Uh, a lot of po- folks pronounce it Las Casas, but in French it would be La Cas. Uh, he uh, had actually uh, lived for ten years after the French Revolution in England, and in, in England, uh, therefore becoming very very fluent in English, uh, he returned. Uh, got into politics, and uh, now, of course, uh, his ability to speak both English and French is invaluable to Napoleon. He his motivation for joining this little entourage seems to have been to get rich uh, by getting close to the emperor, writing these memoirs, and then selling them when he when he gets back home. And and by the way, that's exactly what happens. Uh uh he, he does exactly that. He's on the bestseller list, uh, and and uh his memoirs are extremely uh important to understanding Napoleon uh and how he felt in his time on St. Helena. Then you've got Barry Edward O'Mara, uh who was an Irish doctor, just like the James Verling that I that I mentioned. Uh but O'Mara uh was sort of a last-minute addition. There was a French doctor, and and I've got it in one of my books, I forget what the name is offhand, uh, who had agreed to go with Napoleon, but, but got cold feet and decided not to go after all. Well, if there's anything the British wanted to make sure, that would have been that Napoleon had good medical care. The last thing the British wanted was for Napoleon to be seen uh, as having been ill-treated, particularly when it comes to the question of medical care. They really didn't think they would be seen necessarily as ill-treating Napoleon by putting him in exile in this beautiful garden spot, you know, in South Atlantic. Uh, And I say that, obviously, with irony and and, and sarcasm. Uh, But they certainly did, to their credit, want him to have good medical care. And so uh, Omera uh, uh, actually had met Napoleon and, and Napoleon uh, requested uh, that Omera, and of course, the, from the British standpoint, they, here they have one of the people who will be closest to Napoleon, namely his doctor, uh, you know, one of theirs, a British officer. So they were very, very pleased. Uh, <clears throat> As it happens, and we'll perhaps talk about this in another episode, uh, o- Omera gets a little too chummy with Napoleon. This is a a problem that uh, several doctors had, and Dr. Verling was very careful to avoid, as as I point out in in my book on the subject. Uh, And within three years, he's essentially told by the British uh, that his services are no longer uh, needed, and he's drummed out of the service. However, his memoirs are very sympathetic toward Napoleon, and as they become bestsellers, Uh, Napoleon uh, definitely, uh, you know, the legend of Napoleon is based, at least in some significant measure, on Barry O'Mara's uh, uh, memoirs of of the time there. And then you get a few uh, other people, Uh, Louis-Joseph Marchand, uh, who serves as the maitre d'hotel, or basically the butler. He is the first valet. Uh, he is one of Napoleon's most loyal friends and subjects. He's been with Napoleon for a long time. Uh, his memoirs, which were published after his death and were translated and produced by Proctor Patterson Jones, a dear friend of mine now deceased a number of years ago. His memoirs, again, which I use a lot in in in, in, in all of my books on this period are invaluable uh, they they show Napoleon truly up close and personal in a way that only his first valet uh, could could see him. No one is closer to Napoleon in his day to day living uh, seeing what he's like when he dresses, seeing him alone uh, seeing him in ways that that some of the more you know high ranking folks would never have an opportunity. So if you want to read, it's a very thick book, but it's very, very good. Uh, You know, Marchand's uh, Memoirs, uh, I highly, highly recommend it. Uh, You get Cipriani Franceschi, who is the, the, uh, actually, he, I'm sorry, he's the maitre de hotel. I misspoke. Uh, uh, Marchand is the first valet. He's he's the, 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 the top servant, if you will. The Matre de Hotel or the or the major duomo as he's often also called, uh, is is extremely important. Uh there's some stuff that he wrote, but he, he was a Corsican and he was Napoleon's sort of spy, if you will. He would go into town to buy things and keep his ear to the ground. Uh he was the one that Napoleon depended on for advice as to, as to what he should do and who he could trust and what's going on out there. What are people saying? Am I in danger, Etc. Etc. et, cetera, et cetera. Uh, He dies mysteriously, is supposedly buried. Napoleon says, no, no, I want an inquest. I, I want an autopsy. So they dig up the grave and he's not there. So there's there's some significant controversy over the death of uh, Cipriani, as he's known. Uh, he's always known as Cipriani, his first name. <clears throat> Those people who have looked into uh, the, the 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 murder of Napoleon, how Napoleon died, uh, are, are very very suspicious of the death of Cipriani, because Cipriani was the one person who really. Uh, could have figured out what was going on if there was, in fact, a plot to uh, kill Napoleon by poison. And then you have the second valet, uh, Louis-Étienne Saint-Denis, who is generally known in history as Ali. Uh, uh, his memoirs are also extremely uh, important to understanding uh, Napoleon, uh, and particularly this time on St. Helena, uh, and 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 I've used them quite a bit as well. Uh, there's a there's a staff of of eight additional people, you know, and 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 actually there may be some more, but I won't go into those. But those are the the main players in Napoleon's uh, entourage, and uh, they're the ones who are who are going to form the core of his, uh, court on St. Helena.
1: Very interesting. And you have to, I mean, it's, it's hard for me to put myself in the shoes of those people and to try and get in their heads thinking what they imagined they were going to and why they were going. Uh, do you think any of them, uh, including Napoleon held out any hope that he would, uh, escape or be released or come back from St. Helena in any way? Was there any hope being held in their hearts
0: for that? Or did they all, were well, they all resigned to the fact that this was it? Oh, I think there's no question at all that, that many of them thought that this would eventually end, uh, that once true peace uh, was established between England and France, uh, that, you know, like prisoners of war always are, that, that he would be uh, allowed to uh, to leave, uh, that that after a few years, when when the political situation of Europe was such uh, that it was pretty clear Napoleon was not going to to be able to to make, from their point of view, any more mischief uh, that he would be able to go. Uh, there might have been some folks who believe that that he might uh, uh, somehow. Uh, be able to escape. I think that was foolish if they paid any attention to where they were going. There's not a prayer in the world that Napoleon could escape. And and that, by the way, is a major uh, complaint that I have uh, uh, relating to how he was treated once he was there, uh, because given that he couldn't escape, there was no need for him to have some of the restrictions that he eventually had. Uh, But the, uh, you know, I don't think any of them really thought that it would end the way it did ironically, they might have thought that they would have been there for about that same amount of time, which was about six years, but they probably figured it would be because Napoleon was released, not because they thought Napoleon would have died, because, of course, Napoleon died very young.
1: Indeed. Uh, Now, I've got some uh, more quotes from people who were with Napoleon on the Northumberland that I might read, if I may. Oh, good. Good. Uh, this uh-huh. is uh, from a Boston newspaper, the Columbian Sentinel, dated Saturday, November 11th, 1815. It says Report of Napoleon on the Northumberland. The following are extracts of a letter from a gentleman of information on the island of Madeira to his friend in this city and may be relied on. Madeira, September 14th. On the 24th of August, we had the pleasure to see the British squadron having the destroyer of mankind on board, coming into the bay, (laughs) and the Northumberland making signals. About 10, the Admiral's secretary, Mr Glover, and officers landed, and I was introduced to Mr G at the House of Messrs MTW & Co, on whom orders for wine were drawn. From Mr Glover, who dined every day with Buonaparte, I have collected a number of small anecdotes in addition to others already known. He complained of the Prince Regent for sending him to St Helena, and said the King would have treated him more liberally. He confessed the Duke of Wellington's talents were equal to his own, and that he was more fortunate. He attributed the loss of the severe Battle of Waterloo to the treachery of Ney, and the mistaken confidence he had placed in the French Jacobin party. He pronounced the Emperor Alexander a deceitful man, and said he offered him the hand of a Russian princess. The emperor of Austria he calls a weak man, and the king of Prussia no better. The king of Spain he pronounces a fool. Admiral Cockburn asked him if the American government did not apply to him, previous to the war, for a part of the French navy. No, monsieur, but if they had, I would have given them plenty of ships, provided they sent men, said Napoleon. He spoke sometimes very disrespectfully of the American government. He is excessively fond of card playing and scarcely an evening passes, but he plays 20-21. Uh, uh, One evening, he won 160 Napoleons d'Or from the Admiral, and as it was on his birthday, he was much elated. His suite addresses him as Emperor, the English as a general. He breakfasts at 11, dines with the Admiral at 6, eats heartily and drinks moderately. On the Sunday before he arrived here, he joined the officers of the ship in all the forms of the Episcopal Church. As soon as the service was over, Admiral Cockburn asked what religion he professed. All, said Napoleon, for I find it to be the best policy. (laughs) (laughs) He seldom speaks of his wife and child. He is cheerful and sometimes pleasant, supports his fall with unalterable firmness and joins in conversation with anybody. He delights to converse on his campaigns and military subjects. I ought, he frequently exclaims, to have died at Moscow, for there my glory ended. He speaks no English, but has everything translated to him. Uh, Which I thought was interesting. And then it goes on to say, I've got another one here. This is um, extracts from letters of an officer of the Marines on the HMS Northumberland, dated August 5th, 1815, which had been sent to uh, Ms. Frances williams Wynne. This is based on her uh, diaries. This chap writes, It is my guard, and I have to sit in the antechamber of Napoleon to prevent communication between him and the ship's company and also to be a check on his own domestics. It is now one, and I must keep awake to six. Napoleon gets very sulky if he is not treated with that deference and respect to which he is accustomed. His own followers treat him with the same respect as if he were still emperor. Beattie, my captain, was at Acher. Napoleon learnt this in conversation, seemed quite pleased, caught hold of his ear and gave it a good pinch, which is his custom when pleased, and seems to have taken a great liking to him. He is sometimes very communicative. Today he mentioned the project he had formed for invading England in 1805, declared it had been his intention to lead the expedition himself and said it might have succeeded. The plan was this. He sent his fleet to the West Indies for the purpose of drawing our fleets there, which it did, Lord Nelson and Sir Robert Calder, both following Villeneuve there. He was to return immediately to the Channel and Napoleon said he calculated that Villeneuve would be in the Channel at least a fortnight before our fleets could get back. His army was embarked 200,000, he says, but the plan was disconcerted by Villeneuve's going to Cadiz instead of coming to the Channel. His words were, he might as well have been in the East Indies as at Cadiz. And he then declared that if Villeneuve had obeyed his orders, he should certainly have invaded England. The result be what it might. Bertrand is the only one that seems to feel his situation. He speaks of Napoleon often with tears and is extremely agitated when conversing on the state of France. He says Napoleon did not calculate upon fighting the English and Prussians at Waterloo. The Prussians were beaten on the 16th and it was not supposed that they could have been up to take part in the Battle of the 18th. He thinks the French would have been victorious if the Prussians had not come up, but circumstances were not favourable. The French soldiers fought very well, the officers did not. I asked him what became of the French army after the battle. Why did they not retreat in some sort of order? He said with a shrug they were annihilated. They were, there were none left. Yet, notwithstanding these admissions, they break out, gasconading about their victories. Napoleon's spirits are better. He enters into conversation very freely on different parts of his life. The other day he was speaking of Waterloo. He said he had not the least idea of fighting on the 18th. He did not suppose Wellington would have given him battle. He so fully expected Wellington to retreat that he had not even made preparations for battle and was a little taken by surprise. But, said he... I never was so pleased as when I saw he intended to fight. I had not a doubt of annihilating his army. It was the only thing I could have wished. I expected him to abandon Flanders and fall back on the Russians. But when I found he gave me battle singly, I was confident of its destruction. My soldiers behaved well. My generals did not. He said it was dusk when his army was thrown into confusion, that if he could have shown himself, they would have rallied and been victorious. But the rout was so great, he was carried away in the throng. He went to Paris to try to save the honour of France, but found he could not. He positively asserts that previously to the Battle of Waterloo and after his return to France, Austria proposed to him to abdicate in favour of Napoleon II and promised to support him. His followers too have mentioned so many particulars respecting this that I do not doubt the fact. This proposition had nothing to do with the forged letter of the Duke of Bassano, which they also speak of as a falsehood. None such was shown to him by Murat. He has been talking this evening about his turning Mohammedan. He said it was a long time before he could persuade them that he was a true Mussulman, but at last I persuaded them that Mahomet was wrong in some things and I was right, and they acknowledged to me they acknowledged me to be the greater man. He says that in his retreat from Acre he lost nearly half his army. Yesterday he remarked that Madame Bertrand was in much better spirits than when she attempted to drown herself, and added. A man of true courage will bear up against misfortunes misfortunes, and finally surmount them, while common minds will sink under them. I'm going to read that again because I screwed it up. A man of true courage will bear up against misfortunes and finally surmount them, while common minds will sink under them. He converses sometimes on the subject of his making away with himself and calmly reprobates the idea of his being supposed capable of it. I believe the object of the Guard is to prevent communication with the crew. Napoleon told the Admiral that he did not doubt he could get many to join him if he tried, and indeed they are a set of as mutinous rascals as I ever heard of, though I don't think (laughs) they would assist him to escape. What I am going to state must, for the credit of the country, be a secret. They mutinied and refused to get anchor up at Portsmouth. The artillery company, the 53rd and ourselves, were under arms for three hours, that is to say, till we had sailed." About twenty of the principal seamen were seized and confined, but sent away from the ship, and the conduct and language of the sailors now is beyond everything. They think nothing of striking the midshipmen. Uh, a couple of things I find fascinating that the the rebellion of the uh sailors I find interesting, and I wonder if that had anything to do with the task they'd been given and um, secondly, just this Napoleon's um acceptance of his fate. You know, we talked earlier. Uh, I think it was his first abdication that there was a suicide attempt. But uh, you know, all of the reports of him at this stage seem to show that he was handling it very well. He was very accepting of uh, the way that things had turned out.
0: Well, I mean, first of all, of course, Cameron, he had he had no choice. I mean, you know, what what's what's he, what's he supposed to do? I mean, he could be depressed. He could, he could try to jump off the side of the ship, I suppose, and he, he might have been able to. Uh, but I think by the time he, he is being, realizes he's being sent to St. Helena, he's decided that he's going to do what he said he was going to do on Elba and never did, and that is write his memoirs. <clears throat> At this point, Napoleon is playing to history, and he's playing for the sympathy of history, and and he's going to get it. And I think he and a lot of his entourage thought it might happen a lot sooner, that within a few years, he, he might have played to the sympathy of history and, and there would be a, a major move to, to set him free. Uh, he, he died before that could happen. Whether it ever would have happened, you know, is, is difficult to know. Uh, but the fact is, you know, within a few years, he was dead. Uh, <clears throat> but... But yeah, he, he is going to work on establishing his version of his career. Uh, the legend of Napoleon will begin uh, in, in terms of his, well, no, I'll take that back. It really begins a lot earlier than this, but he's going to work on promoting the legend of Napoleon. A legend, by the way, which I find to be, uh, you know, largely factual in, in all honesty uh that that said uh you know he he knows he's going to go to saint helena he doesn't know for sure what he's going to meet there he doesn't really know how it's going to work out and napoleon is a resilient person he's able to roll with the punches he's able to accept to a very large extent things that have happened and if you look at his whole career, as we have for the last two and a half years or so, he's had a huge number of ups, a number of downs. Uh, his career has taken him to places he could never have imagined. It's a, it's a little bit like my career in a sense, but I, 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 and I'm, please, I do not mean in any way that I'm like Napoleon. You know, he's he's far ahead of me, but You know, in my career, I've managed to do things that I never, ever, years ago, would have imagined possible. You know, it never would have occurred to me that I'd be talking to, you know, 30 or 40,000 people on a podcast or that I would have, you know, seven or eight books out of this, that, and the other thing. It just, I couldn't have imagined it. Napoleon could not ever have imagined in his earlier life how it would end up. And then when he was emperor, he couldn't have possibly imagined how it would end up. Uh, you know, life life comes at you fast that way, as, as one of the commercials on American television uh, likes to say. Uh, and Napoleon was one of those people who could really, as I said a while ago, roll with the punches and try to make the best of whatever situation he had. But underlying that, I believe, was a feeling on the part of him and of his, most at least of his entourage. Uh, that this would not be a permanent deal, or I suppose at worst, if it were a permanent deal, it would be a very pleasant retirement on an on an island where he could write his memoirs and get to know people and travel around and you know go into the to to jamestown and 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 so on. Uh, it did not work out that way, so as I was uh saying earlier uh. Napoleon arrives Saint Helena on the 15th of October, and he he spends his first night in the town of Jamestown, which is actually the only town on the island. Uh, the island, by the way, is is tiny. You know, it's 10 miles long, and at its widest point, it's uh, it's six and a half uh, miles wide. Uh, something around the size 85 square miles or so uh it's about 1100 miles from south africa it's about 700 miles from the island of ascension and of course most importantly it's 4400 miles uh from england i mean it, it took weeks to to uh to get there from england uh the you could see a ship arriving sixty miles away. You know, three sides of the island were cliffs. The harbor was well defended. Uh no one could sneak up. And this was the era before submarines, of course. So no one no one's going to sneak up. Uh you've got a large military uh, garrison. Uh more comes of course on Napoleon's ship. Uh it's—there's uh, no way that anyone could escape that island. There's about 1,400 soldiers on the island. And as I say, the, the only place that anyone could, could, you know, come into was, was the, the main harbor. And in any event, no ship could be unseen uh, as far away as 60 miles. So there's not a prayer— that Napoleon was going to escape. There's not a prayer that someone was going to come and rescue him. There was talk of that. There was a, a brief plot in America to, to, to have a, a, a privateer come and, 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 you know, sneak him off the island. But, but nothing ever came of that. And, and frankly, I think it was all a pipe dream. Uh, this was a, uh, a trading island. It was actually controlled by the East India uh, company. Uh and and it was a, a major, you know, port of call to to the uh uh the, the ships that, that were under the control of the East India Company. And uh so most of the people there, this is kind of important for at least one episode of Napoleon's time there, were involved in trade. And you know, it's it's, it's a situation where Napoleon could very easily have been said, "Listen," you know, or been told, "You know, take, take, live wherever you want to. Go wherever you want to. You can't get off the island, but while you're on the island, you're you're free to roam." And it sort of started out a little bit like that, uh, but it it didn't end up that way. And we start off sort of poorly. When they determine where Napoleon's going to live, there were a number of places that he could have been given uh He ends up living in a place called Longwood House, which was in a very, very poor part of the island. No protection from the sun or the bitter winds that came across this big plateau there uh it was in very ill repair there were rats and so forth there were other places he could have been given to stay he didn't want to stay in town because of the crowds he was too much a curiosity he definitely wanted to go out in the countryside where he, he would have some privacy where he could ride his horses you know get get some exercise and so on uh the prince regent himself had instructed the government to make Napoleon's life as comfortable as possible. So you would think they would have found something that was pretty nice. There was another home called Plantation House, which had a much better uh, climate, was a much nicer home, and so on. But instead they send them to to Longwood. Uh, Marchand writes about this rather bitterly. There are pleasant residences such as Plantation House, Rosemary Hall, and Sandy Bay. The cottages of the Briars, Dutton, and Mason present them with fine hospitality and cool shade to rest from the hot sun. These advantages were non-existent at Longwood. This land possessed no more than a plateau on which a few unsuccessful attempts had been made to establish grain plantations. That part of the island was constantly beaten by southeasterly winds. As good as it might appear to travelers who have just completed a long crossing, the climate of Saint-Hélène is generally unhealthy, particularly in the area occupied by the emperor. Therefore, nothing that the Admiral was projecting in the way of improvements on the Longwood Plateau could appear attractive to the emperor. It was simply a matter of making additions to a dilapidated single-story house of stone that had served as residence to the lieutenant governor. So in essence, Napoleon's gonna be put in the worst place on the island, and eventually he will be governed by the worst possible person to have been assigned uh, to to the job. And yes, he was a prisoner and 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 yes, he he should expect some kinds of restrictions, uh, but but no, uh, he he could have and should have been treated better. Ironically, though, in spite of all that I've said, the first few weeks of his time on Saint Helena are really pretty good. He he had been told he would stay in Jamestown. He had been given. You know what? Apparently was a fairly nice uh, uh, set of rooms. Uh, I've I've not been to to Saint Helena. I've not seen these rooms, so I can't speak from from first uh, hand account. Uh, but he didn't like staying at Jamestown. He was anxious to leave. He rode out with his entourage one day to look at Longwood. Was not happy with it, of course. And on his way back, he stopped at the William Balcom family home a home with the name of the briars he he visited with william balcom balcom was a a a, a trader and uh uh that's t r a d e r trader not traitor and and uh was quite taken with him and his family uh, finding them to be very pleasant uh balcom had A 14-year-old daughter named Betsy, Uh, he himself was superintendent of public sales, of course, for the East India Company. And then he was also partnering a firm that that provided material to ships that would come in. So ships would come in on official business. He was involved in that, but he also was involved in getting them the kind of things that they would want uh, after they put into port. And he made a lot of money and lived quite well. In and, and, and one of the uh, uh, books that I'm involved with, uh, uh, To Befriend an Emperor, Betsy Balcom's memoirs, uh, uh, I, I talk a bit more about, about uh, uh, Balcom. Uh, and I also talk a bit more about Balcom in, in, in the uh, Dr. Verling uh, book. At any rate, uh, Balcom is honored to meet Napoleon, and immediately uh, offers him the use of his home he is prepared to leave his home and turn it over to napoleon well napoleon is is having nothing of that he he doesn't want to to uh, put napole to, to put uh, balcom uh, out uh, but he does like the balcoms uh he's delighted to meet this uh a fourteen year old uh, young 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 lady uh and they take to each other instantly. He is the kindly uncle and i I want to make very clear i and I realize that there are some folks who think well, maybe there was something going on there, no zero zip in my opinion, there was nothing going on between them, other than he was a kindly uncle and enjoyed the company of this of this young lady, this young girl uh and and they would they would play silly games that young girls you know like like to play uh so uh, Napoleon does agree to to, uh, live in, in a different building, uh, on, on, on the property. Uh, and, uh, it's really kind of a pavilion. Uh, some engineers come over and, and they make some additions to it. They also build him, uh, a, a, a basically a big tent kind of thing out on the grounds for his dining hall, uh, and, uh, and a study and for for a couple of months or so, Napoleon lives a fairly nice life. First of all, as I said, he's got this really fun relationship with this fourteen-year-old girl. And as as a teacher, having taught usually fifteen and sixteen-year-olds, a little bit older, uh, you know, I can very well understand that that that, that company could be fun. You know, sometimes it's nice to, to just associate with someone that age. I mean, as a teacher, I always liked my students and, and I could imagine, you know, getting to know them again in a very, very appropriate manner, uh, as sort of, sort of friends in the sense that they, a, 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 a an older person and a very much younger person could, could be friends, but they played games. They, you know, uh, they played hide and seek. Uh, he he would tell her stories about his campaign. Uh, she would tease him mercilessly. Uh, she could she could barge in. What I find fascinating. It didn't matter who he was meeting with. He could be in council with his you know his little court. Uh, who knows what they'd be talking about? But you know and 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 you know his entourage was used to having to go through a very very formal sort of. Of uh, process to see Napoleon, even here in exile, where, in all honesty, and I'm as big a fan of Napoleon as anyone, but, you know, it, it seems a little silly, but maybe that's what helped him keep his mental health. But she could barge in. She, you know, no one would dare stop Betsy if she came in uh, to, uh, to see uh, Napoleon. Uh, and she was the only one who could do that. And you know, think think about this. Uh Napoleon obviously is missing, you know, Josephine's children when the you know, when they were younger, he's he's missing his son. Napoleon liked kids. Uh Napoleon liked young people. And and here he has for the first time in and in, in some time uh the ability to, to deal with someone of, of 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 that of that age. Uh and uh You know, that was a pretty good deal. However, it's also true that it was not a perfect situation for Napoleon. Uh, There were guards everywhere he looked. Uh, Already the tension between the British uh, uh, on the island and Napoleon was was beginning to to make itself known. They were still bickering over what he should be called. Uh, And Napoleon, I mean, Napoleon has to take some blame, too. He could have socialized more with the British on the island. He could have gone into town. He could have gone to balls and stuff. But he began to sort of draw the line. If you will call me emperor, which is what I am, then I will deal with you. If you will not call me emperor, then I will not. And none of the official British society was going to call him emperor because they were essentially told... Uh, not to. Uh, and a lot of people, including me, think uh, maybe this is a little petty. Napoleon staff certainly socialized with the, the, the local people. Uh, Napoleon could be seen as arrogant and foolish given his position. That's not an entirely unfair suggestion, although I think given Given what he was put into and the way he was put into it, he should be cut a fair amount of slack. Uh, I think it's also true that, the, that the, the British government was mean-spirited, petty, and hypocritical. Uh, there was really no reason at all uh, for for him to, uh, to do that. Uh, nevertheless, uh, on December 10th, Napoleon and his group moved with a fair amount of ceremony to his new quarters uh, at uh, Longwood. It ended whatever truly good time Napoleon was able to have, and it set the stage for an increasingly bitter uh, and increasingly difficult time on St. Helena which we'll begin to discuss next time.